you ever watch these popular shows on TV, like CSI, they're always going after the bad guys and they bring in a suspect or maybe a witness and into the interrogation room and began to question them. Where were you on such and such a day? What happened at 3 p.m. in the afternoon? And on and on they go with the questions. Well, I've always thought that if we would investigate Good Friday, if we would examine what happened on the cross to Jesus, we would find some specific answers to what happened at 3 p.m. on Good Friday. Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark, and we are right on schedule to finish next week with the resurrection. I'm surprised I didn't hear some cheers. Yay, we're done. Uh, we might go one extra week because there's a bit of an epilogue afterward, uh, but uh, there, there is, I think, an amazing... Uh, amazing movement throughout the gospel of Mark just to focus on who Jesus is and what he's accomplished and it all will climax at the cross and in the empty tomb. But in Mark chapter 15, Mark gives us some of these clear indicators as how the death of Christ was progressing. For instance, if you look at verse 25, it says, it was at the third hour when they crucified him. Now, Christ had a Jewish trial and a Roman trial. The Jewish trial was in the middle of the night. They came out with the accusation that he was a blasphemer and worthy of death. That accusation wouldn't work with the Romans, so they changed it slightly, that he had called himself a king, a rival to the emperor. And that's the accusation they brought to the Romans. He calls himself a king. And that trial went rather quickly because now he's being crucified at the third hour. That's the third hour after sunlight, which corresponds to our 9 a.m., roughly. Sunrise, roughly 6 a.m., third hour after sunlight, 9 a.m. So that's what he's talking about. The crucifixion of Christ started early in the morning. Now notice verse 33. At the sixth hour which is what time, according to our calculation? Noon, right? Noon. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, there was supernatural darkness. Now, how paradoxical is this? At the height of daylight, darkness. In fact, the whole thing is paradoxical. It's, it's absurd. It, it doesn't make any sense. The good, righteous Jesus Christ dies like a criminal. The creator of light banishes light. The one who said, I am the bread of life, dies. It's all paradoxical. But notice at the ninth hour, this is verse 34, which is what time? 3 p.m. So what happened at 3 p.m.? At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Now that's paradoxical. Crucified people don't cry out in a loud voice. Their strength is gone. They simply have no energy left, no ability. It's been taken from them. So this is unique. 
this loud voice of victory. He cries out, Eloi, Eloi, which is probably Hebrew, Lama Sabachthani, which is probably Aramaic. The Hebrew sounded like he was calling for Eli, Elijah, and that's why they asked. He's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes to help. And then the Aramaic part is this idea of being forsaken. Why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus said other things on the cross, but Mark does us, doesn't give us all of the statements. But it does say at, in verse 37, and with a loud cry, notice, loud cry, Jesus breathes his last. Now, Jesus didn't die because of the cross. He willingly gave up his spirit. When you and I die, our spirit's taken from us by disease, by old age, by an accident, whatever it might be. You can't set your spirit free. You can do harm to your body and die, but you can't release your spirit. That's what Jesus did. Okay, I'm done. You can go. What was that last loud cry? He said, according to John, it is finished. I've paid the price. The debt is paid. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. That's what happened at the ninth hour. Now, what happened immediately after that? <laughs> the investigator might say. And Mark tells us. He tells us of two incidents which we often have a tendency to overlook. Verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew adds the idea immediately after he cried. The temple curtain was torn. And, verse 39, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. He saw how he died and heard his cry. And he came up with this statement. So I want us to look at these two things because they're not only amazing miracles that took place right after, at the very moment that Jesus gave up his spirit. As the old King James says, he gave up the ghost. Immediately these things happened. But I want us to see them because they have amazing ramifications for our life today. It's not just ancient news. It's not an old-time event with no modern significance. These are life-changing truths. I hope for you as you put your faith and trust in Christ. So first of all, the tearing of the curtain. What curtain is he talking about? Well, it is a specific curtain it's the katapetasma, uh, which doesn't mean anything except I worked a long time trying to say that word, so I had to say it to you. Uh, but it is an interesting word that is found just six times in the New Testament. Three times in the Gospels where it's used in this situation. The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And the other three times it's used in the New Testament, it's used in the book of Hebrews. And we'll look at those in just a minute. But you have to understand that the temple had two curtains. If you think of the temple as three perfect cubes, 
And the first two are joined together in what is called the holy place. There was a curtain at the entrance of the holy place. In the holy place was the menorah candle, the table of showbread, table of incense. Priests came in and out of the holy place all of the time. New bread, new incense, lights, new oil for the lights. They were in and out daily multiple times. And then the priests would shift and a new group would come in but do the same thing. The back section of the temple is called the most holy place, or we often call it the holy of holies, right? And there was a curtain between the holy place where the priest came in all the time and the holiest place of all where no one entered except the high priest. And the high priest could only come in one day a year, day of atonement, and the high priest could only come in, only the high priest, only on the Day of Atonement, only if he brought blood from a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, to put on the altar, to put on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I find it interesting that this high priest who could only, the only one to go in, could only go in one day a year, had to have the sacrifice, they had bells on the bottom of his robe. You say, why bells? That's to to know if the guy's still alive. I mean, that's an awesome place to walk into. You walk in in the wrong way, wrong person, wrong way, no sacrifice, you're dead. So they had the bells on there. The other priests said to each other, can you hear the bells? Yeah. Eli's still kicking. Good. They did something else, too. (laughs) This is a bit freaky, but they tied a rope around his ankle. You say, why a rope around his ankle? Because if he dies, I'm not going in there to get him. He can stay there for all I care. I'm not going in. Do you hear the bells? No, I don't hear the bells. Eli. Eli. Pull the rope. I don't know if it ever happened, but those are the precautions that they took. You see, this curtain was a screen. It was a veil. It was very thick, by the way. Some uh, scholars say that it was as thick as a man's hand. Six or eight inches, depending on whether you play in the NBA or not. But it was thick. And the scriptures tell us that it was a separator. It was like a wall. It shut people out from the holy presence of God. Oh, there was a system to work with it. You had to have a human high priest. And you had to have the blood sacrifice of animals. And you had to follow some other regulations. That's the way it was in the old covenant. So what's the significance then of the curtain being torn? Why was it torn? Well, let's go to the scriptures and see what the Bible has to say. The book of Hebrews, and we'll have some of this on the screen for you, but first of all, Hebrews chapter six. This word curtain, just three times in the Gospels, and just three times in the book of Hebrews. Here's the first one, Hebrews chapter six. And it says that we have a hope for, as an anchor for the soul that is both sure and steadfast, both firm and secure. So he's talking about the benefit that accrues to the believer in Jesus. You can have a hope of sins forgiven and a certain sure hope 
that you'll have eternal life. What is it based on? Jesus has entered this inner sanctuary for us. He's gone behind the curtain. He's gone into the holy place. That's where Jesus is. So our hope can go into the holy place because Jesus is already there. He went before us and he went on our behalf. Who is Jesus? He's a high priest, better than the old high priest. He has a covenant called the new covenant, better than the old covenant. He has the blood that he sheds on the cross as the sacrifice, better than the blood of bulls and goats. And he's already gone into the presence of God on our behalf. So if we put our faith and trust in him, our hope is secure. That's the goal. You see, God wants Christians to have peace of heart that they're right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Trust the good news. Believe the gospel. Turn from your sin. Trust Christ alone. And your hope can be steadfast and sure. How do you know that? Because Jesus has already passed through the veil. The next reference is chapter 9, and it simply mentions that the second curtain was a curtain that separated between the holy place and uh, the most holy place. But look at Hebrews chapter 10. This is verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Wait a minute. We have confidence to enter? I thought it was only the high priest one day a year with blood. The high, our high priest has already gone in. He's paved the way for us. So we have confidence to go into the holy place by the blood of Christ, the most holy place by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way, a better covenant. The old is decrepit. It's dead. The new way is alive, dynamic. And it's been opened for us through the curtain that is his what? Body. The curtain represents his body. When his body suffered on the cross, it was broken. It was torn. And immediately after his body was torn, the curtain was torn. And the way, because of the body of Christ, is opened into the presence of God. When we take communion, we take the bread and we quote the words of Christ, this is my body which is broken for you, right? For you. I went into the veil for you. The temple veil curtain is torn for you. And when you trust me, your confidence can be sure and steadfast. And so verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 10 says this. Let us draw near to God in sincere faith. That is with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Having our conscience cleansed and our bodies washed. Symbolic of the cleansing power of Christ over our entire being. So let us draw near. God has provided the way. That which shut us out from the presence of a holy God because we were sinners has been bridged. A way has been paved. And we can enter into that holy place by the work 
of Jesus Christ. By the way, did you notice the scripture says in Mark chapter 15 that the curtain was torn from top to bottom? What does that mean? This is God's action, not man's, right? You say, well, Matthew says that there was an earthquake, and I'm sure that somehow uh, worked against the foundation of the temple, and the temple moved, and the, and the curtain tore. I don't care if God used an earthquake or not. It's still the work of God. And the temple, the curtain being torn, whether it's the first curtain getting into the holy place, I think it's the second curtain going into the holy of holies, the point is there's free access. And so here's the good news for you. If you're not a Christian, there's a way for you to become one. If your sins aren't forgiven, Jesus has made a way. And if you trust him, you can be forgiven. If you are a Christian, God wants you to have full assurance and hope. A hope that's steadfast and sure because you're already beyond the veil. Go ahead about, uh, let's say, three months after the death of Christ. Okay? Jesus ministers on the earth for 40 days, right? Ascends into heaven. Pentecost takes place. The gospel is preached by Peter and the other apostles. Thousands of people are getting saved. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7 says, the word of God was spreading. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests were obedient to the faith. <laughs> I can't help but think that some guys were in the holy place doing their job. You know, and the curtain rips open. And they see the miracle and they wonder what in the world's going on. And word had to spread. I'm telling you guys, it started at the top and worked all the way to the bottom. And did you know it was a very moment when that guy Jesus died? And maybe it took some of these guys a while to come around. But maybe it's some of the same Jerusalem priests who saw the curtain torn who came to faith. It's a witness. That's why Mark records it. It's a witness to the authenticity of the death of Christ. It is a witness to the purpose of his death and the accomplishment of his death. There's a way open for you into the presence of God. Now what about the testimony of the centurion? Uh, this is found in verse 39 and here the scriptures tell us what he saw and what he said. The testimony of the centurion. What did he see? This Roman centurion. By the way, if you are a centurion, you are a leader of how many people? Century? 100. He's a leader. He's a... Uh, tough veteran of wars. He had to be to ascend to this rank. He's seen hundreds of people die on the battlefield, and he's now given execution duty. He's an expert at killing people. He knows how to torture people right to the point of dying and pull them back so they'll be tortured some more. That's exactly what the Romans did. This guy had a squad of people that he was supervising that day when Jesus died, he saw Jesus beaten, or at least saw the results of it. 
He supervised the nailing of Jesus to the cross. And then the pulling up of that cross and letting it fall like a thud into a hole. That was his job. He saw the darkness at noon. Couldn't explain that one. He heard Jesus cry. Now, Mark doesn't give us the, the cries of Christ, but you put them all together, and he heard the compassion toward his mother. He heard the forgiveness toward the Jewish leaders. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And to the Roman soldiers, Father, forgive them. Was he talking to the centurion? Forgive this guy. He doesn't know what he's doing. God just killed me. He heard the thief say, to the other thief, after both of them were attacking Christ, somewhere in the sixth hour period, one of the thieves said, hey, wait a minute, this guy's done nothing wrong, but we're being crucified for something we've done. Remember me when you go to your kingdom. And Jesus said what to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. And the centurion heard that. And I can't help but think he said, man, when I die, I want to go to paradise. He heard everything Jesus said. He saw all that he experienced, and he said, this is different than any death I've ever seen. This is not right. This is a big mistake. We should have never been killing this guy. And in the death of Christ, Jesus reveals his true identity, and the Roman centurion saw it. He was an unbiased observer. And what the religious people missed, this guy saw. And what did he say? He said, surely, this man was the Son of God. You say, that's poor theology. He's still the Son of God. The guy's a Roman soldier. He doesn't know much. Probably all he knows is what he just learned in the last six hours. This is faith. I can't tell you whether he's saved for sure, but I, I would say this is faith as far as he could go with what he knew. Surely this man was the Son of God. The only other person in all the Gospel of Mark that comes close to that is Peter when he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. No, no, no one else in all the Gospel of Mark gives this title to Jesus. Son of God. Christ takes it upon himself. You've got a Jewish disciple and a Roman soldier who kind of give the, the two climaxes throughout the book where Jesus is identified as to who he really is. He is son of God. The evidence was overwhelming and this Roman soldier was convinced. By the way, son of God is a title that the Roman emperor took to himself. And this centurion was sworn to be loyal to one emperor, one king alone. And it was dangerous for him to call anyone else son of God. But he took the risk. He was so convinced that it was true. Son of God. How much did he understand? We don't know. But this was faith for him. This was the best he could do with what he knew. It's interesting when you read Matthew's gospel, it says that he was terrified because he felt the earthquake that took place when Jesus died. But Luke says he praised 
God and said, surely this man was a righteous man. He understood that the morality of Jesus was far superior to anyone else. But he went further than that. I think he approached understanding the divinity of Jesus when he said, Son of God. He cried out in faith. And whether this guy truly trusts the Lord or not, I think Mark is inviting all of us as readers of the gospel to make these words our own. By the way, Romans, who is Mark writing to? He's writing to people who live in Rome. And he brings in this testimony. He joins the two together to say, hey, here's one of your guys who calls Jesus this observer, not biased at all, comes to the conclusion Jesus is the Son of God. How are the two stories connected? When the way of God is open, the first one who takes the step through is a Roman centurion, which means the gospel goes to everyone. I have to mention this, although there's not a whole lot of time and we should maybe develop this into a whole sermon, but there's some other witnesses, not just the tearing of the cross, not just the testimony of the centurion, but look at verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph, and Salome, a sister to the mother of Jesus. In Galilee, these women had followed him. They cared for his needs. They were kind of like the inner circle of women that corresponded to the inner circle of the twelve. And then he adds in verse 41 that there were many other women who came up to Jerusalem with Jesus and they were there. Where are the men? They all forsook him and fled. Where are the women? At least a core of them, they're there. It's interesting that in the ancient world, women were regarded as objects of weakness. And Mark is saying, you want to talk about courage? Here it is. Look at these women of faith. He inverts the stereotype. Here's the model of a true disciple. Now, I'm not saying that the women understood all that was going on, that they said, well, just in a few days he'll be resurrected. No, they were surprised when the tomb was empty. But there they were, love clinging in the midst of hearts broken. By the way, you think about it, the crucial events of the cross, the, the crucial events of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. What is the gospel? Death burial and resurrection of Christ. It's in the Apostles' Creed. Death, burial, resurrection of Christ. The witnesses in each one of those crucial moments, the women. The last ones to leave on Good Friday, the first ones to be there Easter Sunday, the women. This is not accidental. Mark is saying, hey, listen, church. We owe so much to godly women of faith. And they need to be vital, vitally involved in the ministry of any local church. Judaism would not regard the testimony of a woman in an official court of law. 
Mark says, they're the only witnesses we've got. Uh, These other guys are gone, or at least they're the prominent witnesses. These are God-chosen witnesses, and it's recorded in Holy Scripture. I find it amazing that in the Gospels, there's not a real detailed, gory account of the crucifixion because God's not after our pity. But enough is explained because what he wants to engender is faith. And the witnesses are all here. And the evidence is convincing. And you and I need to own the words of the Roman centurion, but say it with a heart of faith. I believe. What does this all mean? Number one, the way to God is open. Through Christ. And I don't know how accurate this picture is, but I think this is an awesome picture of the curtain being torn from top to bottom. How can you explain that? And secondly, as God saves the Roman centurion, or at least there is this confession that comes so close to faith, God's grace reaches out to the worst of people. It's interesting that the uh, Roman centurion is clearly mentioned in all the Gospels except John, but some people think that John 19.35 is the Roman centurion who said this, he who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth. Yeah, that could be John looking off from a distance as he helps the mother of Jesus. But the text seems to imply it might have been one of the soldiers who actually pierced the side of Christ or maybe supervised the death of Christ who became a believer. Let's pray. And while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I don't know what your personal relationship to Jesus is, but this much I know. He died to save you. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So that whoever believes in him won't perish, but instead will have life that never ends. We're all sinners and we're on our way to punishment, eternal punishment. We are condemned already. We are perishing and our only hope is that God would make a way for us to get right with him, and he has. By coming down in the person of Christ, dying for our sins in the cross, and making a way open. Will you step through that way by faith? Will you respond like the Roman soldier and say, you are the son of God, and I believe. Any heart this very moment who cries out in faith to Christ will be immediately forgiven and you will become a new child of God. Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts today. Speak to that one who needs to trust you and may they find forgiveness at the cross. In your name we pray. And God's people said, amen. Don't forget next Sunday, Easter Sunday, bring some other people with you. The Good Friday service, a great time to bring others.
here to hear the gospel. Then, of course, one voice, the musical that is going to be taking place every night, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Make sure you're here with others as well. Great opportunities to introduce people to Christ. God bless you. You're dismissed.